Robert Garrett. Robert Garrett was a student, a college student at Princeton University in the 1890s. While he was a student, Robert was also a part of the track and field team. If any of you are Summer Olympics junkies, or if you played a sport in high school just so you could say you were on the team, you know what track and field is, right? So track refers to the running and the sprinting events, and field refers to the jumping and vaulting events, as well as the throwing of objects. Robert Garrett was a big guy. It was the 1890s, and his primary event was the shot put. This is the one, you know, where you put the big ball that looks like a cannonball on your shoulder, try and hoist it as far as you can. While he was a student, word started to get around at Princeton that for the first time, something called the Olympics were going to be held in 1896 in Athens, Greece. And lo and behold, Robert gets selected to be part of the American team. So Robert's coach suggested that he not only go out for shot put, that he, but that he also try the discus as well. This is the event where you hold an object that looks like a frisbee and start to circle around and launch it as far as you can. However, Robert and his coach had never actually seen or held a discus. So being from Princeton, the historians say they consulted classical authorities, and then Robert Garrett hired himself a blacksmith to make him a discus. The blacksmith had never seen a discus before either, but he looked at Robert's picture, and he went into a shop and made him something out of iron. So Robert Garrett trained for the first Olympics using a 30-pound Frisbee. He could barely throw the thing. So you can imagine that he wasn't extremely optimistic about his chances for success when he showed up in Athens. In fact, he was so discouraged that he was planning on just competing in the other events until they got to Athens and someone saw a real discus. And then someone came and said, hey, Bob, hey, Bob, 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 you got to come over here. This thing weighs less than five pounds. And when Robert got his hands on the real thing, he launched that discus. The historians say that the Greeks were shocked because Robert Garrett didn't even know the proper technique. He didn't know the right classical stance. He didn't know the right athletic pose. He didn't even know the whole technique for like the twirling before you throw it. Instead, he just seized that light, little, puny discus in his big right hand, and he fired it. And Robert Garrett won a gold medal in the discus at the first modern Olympics, the very first time he actually threw a real one. Why? Because an impossible 30-pound weight got taken out of his hands, had been literally lifted right out of his hands and replaced with something ridiculously light. Okay, why am I telling you this story? Well, let me ask you this. What if Bob had come back to New Jersey and talked to his coach and told him, well, that was fun, I like that gold medal, but honestly, it was a little too simple for me. 
What I want to do is compete again in 1900. But I feel like for me, what would be better for me, what would make me feel better about myself and my accomplishments, what I could be proud of is if I went back to competing with the iron discus that's 30 pounds. I feel like I'd be a better athlete if I could do that. If you were his coach, what would the appropriate response be to that statement? It would be, are you insane? Are you nuts? Are you thinking clearly? Picture the indignation, right, and the shock and the feeling that would well up inside of that coach of a gold medal winning athlete. Are you nuts? Well, that is the tone of our text today. So I want you to hear it. Let's read it together again. This is Galatians 3, 1 through 5. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you now so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you experience all of these things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Let's pray. Spirit, we are asking you that as we open this inspired word, that you would help us see the truth of these words. We're asking that you would help us to hear your word rightly and to be obedient listeners. We ask for it in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Okay. Paul came and established a gospel-preaching church in Galatia. After establishing the church, he continued on in his missionary work. But shortly after leaving Galatia, Paul was dismayed to hear that false teachers had emerged in his absence and moved in and told his people that Paul's gospel of grace was inadequate or insufficient, that his gospel of faith in Jesus Christ was inadequate. It was being added to by the false teachers. And these false teachers were requiring ritual observance to the Mosaic law as a necessity for right standing with God. This is what we've been preaching through since September. So when he hears this, Paul sits down and fires off a letter to the Galatians. And he tells the first two chapters, he spends that time denouncing the false teachers. He tells his own biography and establishes his own apostolic credentials, and he begins to unpack this doctrine of justification by faith. Right standing before God is possible, and it is only possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is what we've been talking about since September. Now, okay, transition in chapter 3. Paul here is pausing for a second and zeroing in, addressing his audience very personally, very passionately. Foolish Galatians, who, <coughs> excuse me, who has bewitched you? In the text that we read, Paul is addressing his audience with a string of questions. Who has bewitched you? Then he says, let me ask you only this. This is the sign for the Galatians that a barrage of questions is coming. You never want to hear that. 
let me ask you only this. Because, <coughs> excuse me, because it usually means that there are a string of questions coming, right? And you're not going to have a good answer for any of them. Paul has all the right questions right now, and he's going to unleash them one at a time. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? That's the first one. Are you so foolish? Second one. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Third one. Did you experience everything in vain? Fourth. And then finally, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law? or by hearing with faith? Summary question. Boom. Five questions in a row. In other words, could be summarized in one question. Do you think that you move beyond the gospel? This is like the time one of my good friends and I were sitting around, I think we were probably drinking coffee, talking casually one night, and my friend mentioned very casually that he wasn't really sure that he liked his fiance, And he wasn't sure that he was attracted to her. He didn't like his fiance, and he wasn't sure that he felt attracted to her. As you can imagine, it took a minute for that news to settle. I think I blinked like this and kind of, kind of squinted my eyes. And then I said, wait. Let me get this straight. Let me ask you only this. You're not really sure you like her? Didn't you already fly over to Finland and propose to this girl on a deserted island? Didn't you already have an engagement party and people gave you gifts? Aren't you supposed to be getting married next month? Are you insane? That's Paul's tone. He can't believe that he went to Galatia and that he established these guys in the free grace of the gospel and that they have so quickly drifted. So these are rhetorical questions right now. They're the type of questions that you ask to make your point, not because you're expecting some kind of great legitimate answer, but because you know there is no good answer. He's saying, are you kidding me? The false teachers have come in and convinced the Galatians that there's something called advanced Christianity. That's what I would call it. What Paul said was fine and good and helpful, and maybe these were some of the basics, but now it is time to progress on into the other stuff. They're saying, you can't just stay where you started, right? They were saying that the way forward goes beyond the gospel. The gospel was a stepping stone, but to go forward would require more. It would require more. When I was in high school and college, one of my best friends had a shiny red Mitsubishi Eclipse. He came from one of those families that gave their kids cars when they graduated high school. I and the rest of my friends came from families that gave cards for graduating high school. So even though I didn't know anything about cars, 
I had a healthy respect for this eclipse. It was beautiful. And my buddy was on a continual, ongoing search for what he called the good gas. That was always his question. Where is the good gas? It had to be the right gas station with the right fuel for his car. He used to drag race this car back in New York City. And having experienced the speed and the power of this car, he would never put just cheap, watery, unleaded fuel that I happily put in my old car because he had already seen the power of the good gas. That's what Paul's responding to when he says, foolish Galatians, the gospel is like, it's like pure rocket fuel. And he's saying, you got started with the good stuff. And somehow, you think the way forward is through some kind of cheap, watery mixture. So I want to walk through this text. We've already said, Paul uses the words foolish and bewitched to describe the Galatians. And I don't think, I don't think I'm saying anything, um, anything difficult to understand when I say these aren't adjectives meant to boost the Galatians' self-esteem. He doesn't say politely, who persuaded you or who convinced you or so what's changed your mind? Rather, his word bewitched is suggesting you would have to be hypnotized. You would have to be out of your right mind. You would have to experience a change of mind like this. What he's saying is somebody conned you guys. You've been duped. You're left standing right now with the bag of fake money. No one in their right mind would do what you've done. You've been fooled. You're foolish. He doesn't want them to think, even for a second, that the additions that have been made to their gospel are reasonable or defensible. Then secondly, he says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Before your eyes. This is an interesting phrase because it sounds almost like Paul is saying that they were eyewitnesses of the death of Jesus Christ. And they were not. Paul's ministry started years after Jesus' death. However, Paul's preaching was so clear, so vivid, and his message to the Galatians was so direct that Paul is choosing to use this language. He's saying, I put Jesus and his cross right before you, front and center, made it so clear to you that it was as if you saw these events unfolding before your very eyes. You heard me say explicitly, clearly, directly, that self-salvation is a lie and that the death and resurrection of Jesus is your only hope for life. You heard me tell you directly that by keeping of the law, nobody will be justified and that you are in dire need of the death and resurrection of Jesus. So what Paul made, what he chose to make explicit was not the requirements of living a godly Christian life. Instead, he made Jesus and his cross so explicit that he could say, it was before your eyes that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. And then he asks the question, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law 
or by hearing with faith. So again, the question's rhetorical. Paul is saying, let's review this. How does this work? Did Jesus come and save you and fill you with his spirit because of your works? No, he did not. You were doing nothing, and Jesus showed up in grace through preaching, and he justified you. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Paul is saying, you started with the Spirit, given freely, undeservedly. And for the Galatians, their pursuit of perfection is now including observance of the law. And they believe that they have the power to fulfill, to obtain this pursuit. Having begun by the Spirit, they've faded to human effort. And Paul is saying, the Spirit showed up long before these false teachers showed up with their false additional works to add to the gospel. He's asking, let's review. How does God work again? Does he give you the Spirit and work miracles because you're good at doing things? Does he save you by grace and empower you because you are a good person? No. And what Paul is saying, he may be addressing a first century audience, but he's getting at an issue that's absolutely central for us. Right? We believe that God is the worker in our justification. That God, through Jesus, is the one who has worked to make us right before him. But let me ask you this. Do we believe that God is still the worker in our sanctification? Or do we now believe that we are the workers? Are we going to propel ourselves forward into what I called before advanced Christianity? That is the notion that Paul is calling foolishness. Yet, this idea that we can is so compelling that Paul says, you've been bewitched. Now you might say, okay, Matt, that's fine. What exactly does this have to do with me? I'm not attempting ritual observance of the law to curry favor with God. Well, let me ask you this. So Wednesday is New Year's Day. It's January 1st, start of 2014. I'm going to guess that some of you are big resolution makers. You have goals for 2014, right? You have maybe pounds you want to lose. You have a new plan for fitness, perhaps. Maybe you have a new plan for Bible reading, for some personal disciplines. Possibly there are some new books that you would like to read, and you want to improve your financial habits. Those are just some guesses. And then I think it's probably also safe to say that others of you are not so into resolutions per se, but you do have dreams for the new year. They may reside in your head and in your heart a little bit more than some of, uh, some of you who are a little bit more type A, but, uh, and you may not have written all these goals out in a strategic place. However, you still have hopes and dreams for the new year. So whether you're a resolver or not, or whether or not you pay attention to the calendar, whether this time of year kind of generates an, exist- an existential crisis inside of you, or whether you don't even know that the year's about to start, I'm sure that if we took stock of our lives right now, if we took a second to take stock, I'm sure that most of us would look and say, okay, spiritually, relationally, 
as an employee, as a friend, as a family member, as a spouse, as a church member, as a learner, as an earner, we could all find areas, right, where we would say, yeah, yeah, that could improve. I would like to do better in that. I would like to do better. Well, let me ask you this. What is the context of your self-improvement? So where are you going to draw the strength to propel yourself forward? Because this is how I think many, if not most, Christians think. Like this. I was saved, past tense, by Jesus in the gospel. I received the good news. That was the entry point. Now, there are certain areas of my life, my personal spiritual disciplines, my parenting perhaps, my marriage, if that applies, my relationships, that I know are addressed by the gospel. So now that I'm a Christian, I need to learn about these things and apply the principles found in the Bible to my life. They're going to help me be faithful, both in my personal devotions, and be a good, a better person, a good spouse, a good parent, a good student, etc. Then, if I can get a handle on those things, then I know the Bible also contains some stuff about my work and about money, and it has some advice for how to approach those areas of my life. Therefore, when I can get a handle on that, my Christian faith will make me a good and moral person with strong direction for my life, and I will draw deep internal strength from it and find purpose for my personal faith. So let me use the financial example for a second. It's almost the start of the new year, right? And you've probably, in December, had a ton of irregular expenses, and you had Christmas presents to pay for and travel to pay for, and you might go into January pretty motivated to improve or maybe just catch up. And you might say, I'm going to get on a better budget. I'm going to save more. Maybe I'll go out. <clears throat> I'll go out less. I'm going to possibly read a financial book. And this year, I'm going to put money into my 401k. Okay, so that might be great, right? All those things. That might be great and wise. But the question that I want to ask is, what does the gospel actually have to do with your personal quest for self-improvement? What does it actually do with your notion that you can improve? And then I think if we thought about it, the answer, the functional answer that a lot of us would have is nothing that I can actually think of. Pastor Tim Keller puts it like this. Christians think that we are saved by the gospel, but then we grow by applying biblical principles in every area of life. But we are not just saved by the gospel. We grow by applying the gospel to every area of life. In Seven Mile Road, that's what I want you to hear and believe as we go into this new year. We grow by applying the gospel into every area of our life. We don't progress past the gospel. We go deeper in. We don't progress past it. We go deeper in. The gospel is not just the entry point, nor is it just foundational. It is foundational, but it is also inexhaustible. The verb for Christ crucified, when Paul said, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified, 
That word crucified is in a, in a tense that shows off continuing effects. In other words, we aren't speaking of something that merely has historical significance. What we are speaking of is something that has continual ongoing power through the reality of the death and resurrection of Christ. Elsewhere in his writings, Paul said, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, God the Father who looked down on you in undeserved mercy and sent Jesus Christ, his Son, who atoned for your sins and granted you his righteousness and has filled you with his Spirit, that same God will be faithful to bring the good work that has started in you to its full completion. Your completion is not when you reach the pinnacle of self-improvement. Your completion, my completion, our completion will come to pass at the day of Jesus Christ when every knee is bowed before him. We advance the same way that we begin, through the gospel, through the finished work of the one who has miraculously been working, ongoing for us. That's Jesus Christ. So let me just apply this. How am I telling you to respond to this? Two really simple things. The first one straight from our text. Hearing with faith. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Hearing with faith is a synonym for believing the gospel. So often when I ask someone how they are doing, for example, how is your relationship with God? They default and begin quickly telling me about their Bible reading. Well, I haven't been reading the Bible as much as I should. They feel distant from God, and they have an ongoing feeling of low-level guilt because of their, what they would call poor Bible reading habits. I think Paul would say, you don't need to read the Bible to merit anything. Reading the Word of God is never about that. You are saved completely apart from any one of your spiritual disciplines. But you receive the Spirit by hearing with faith. And therefore, we love God's Word and we depend on it for life. Martin Luther said it like this, If you want to obtain grace, then see to it that you hear the Word of God attentively or meditate on it diligently. The word, I say, and only the word, is the vehicle for God's grace. It seems like hearing by faith had become too simple for the Galatians. They had drifted to addition, to self-salvation, and abandoning the word. It's like going back to that 30-pound discus. It's like putting the watery gas back in your car. It's actually demonstrating a belief that the strength to propel yourself forward actually resides in yourself. We never get beyond the gospel. So we love God's word. We hear it, reading it, 
preaching it, we hear it with faith. We respond in faith. And secondly, practice gospel dependency over gospel advice. And this application is specifically pointed to our shared life together, to our gospel communities. So I think all of us, and this goes way beyond this church, generally want to hang out with people in our exact life stage, right? That's most comfortable for us. Or in a life stage that is a tick above us. Because the people that are in our exact life stage know what we're going through. The people that are a tick above us can help us and say, you're going to make it, okay? And they can encourage us that we're going to survive. And uh, I've been part of communities in this church where, honestly, probably if you pooled our shared wisdom in the room, it, we would still probably, even together, be pretty, pretty clueless. And then right now, I'm loving being part of a gospel community where I'm actually the youngest guy in the room, and we have immense life experience and practical wisdom and these guys can encourage me and give me direction and perspective in life in areas that I'm, you know, essentially really still a novice or basically clueless. But regardless of what the case, whether you're, whether you're in a community that's very diverse or that tends to be um, pretty age similar, or whether you're in a community where people seem to be in a fairly similar place spiritually or there's a major gaps in maturity, what I'm saying is, we are together a gospel dependent. <coughs> We're a gospel dependent people. Don't let life stage or common interest be what draws you together. The best friends, the best gospel communities, are going to be about more than common interest or shared life stage. That stuff is great and valuable, but the best relationships will be the ones that are the most gospel-fluent and the most gospel-dependent, the ones that are quickest to say, where are you not believing the gospel right now? Remember my financial example from before? These are the friends in the communities that are going to say to you, your greatest need right now is not your credit card debt or your 401k. We're going to give to you. We're going to share with you what we have. But we are also going to remind you that God has and will supply all your needs in Christ Jesus. How is he who did not spare his own son not going to freely give you all things? The best gospel communities are going to be the ones that are the most gospel dependent because we do not move past the gospel. We go further in. It's foundational, but it's inexhaustible. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have dealt with us in undeserved mercy, and we pray in this new year for this church that by your spirit we would depend deeper and deeper on your gospel, that we would hear it with faith and believe. Amen.